Casting through Ancient Greece is an Amazon Associate member. As an Amazon Associate, I earn from qualifying purchases. What this has allowed me to do is recommend books to you guys that are relevant to the episode that I am presenting. The books I'll be recommending I have read myself and have made use of during writing the series. If you are interested in purchasing what I recommend, using the link of the book on the episode page of my website will help support the series with providing me a small commission. For this episode, I'm going to recommend a commentary on Herodotus, volumes 1 and 2. These books cover the entire work of Herodotus with a very extensive commentary on what Herodotus presents. They provide great insight and help with understanding why things appear as they do in the histories. If you head to the episode page for episode 37, Herodotus, the Father of Lies, on the Casting Through Ancient Greece website, you can find both links for a commentary on Herodotus. Additionally, if you would like to become a member of Audible, the largest collection of audiobooks on the internet, you can click on the Audible banner on the Casting Through Ancient Greece website to gain a 30-day trial membership where you also find a number of the books I'll be recommending. The style of Herodotus of Halicarnassus, my dear Alexander, because it is simple and lacking in effort and easily runs over events, has thoroughly deceived many people. And more people have experienced this with his character, for not only is it, as Plato says, the greatest injustice to appear just when one is not, it is also an act of the greater malice to mimic a good nature and simplicity in a way that is hard to detect. The opening of Plutarch's On the Malice of Herodotus Hello, I'm Mark Selleck and welcome back to Casting Through Ancient Greece, episode 37, Herodotus, the Father of Lies. Last episode we turned to Herodotus and looked at who he was, even though there was very little reliable information on him. As we saw, he was more interested in talking about people, places and events, rather than himself. Forming a biography of him was left to others, who have looked in his work to draw out a profile of who he was. Some information from doing this is forming assumptions, while others seem a little more certain. It was difficult to tell if what we knew about him was invented from things within his history such as his exile in Samos, due to him seeming to have a good knowledge of the island and being quite partial to the place. Or had his real life experience and exile shaped his opinions of the island? But nevertheless, we were able to get a basic picture of the man who would offer us one of the earliest histories in the Western world. We also looked at what his work The Histories encompassed. Often we are told he presents the history of the Greek and Persian wars, but he presents a whole lot more, which has helped us understand the early history of some Greek city-states, such as Athens and Sparta, while he sets out on his mission to understand why war occurred between the Greeks and the Persians. Along the way we are also presented many peoples that the Greeks saw as barbarians, where we are told of their interesting customs and traditions, these usually coming up in Herodotus's frequent digressions. We then finished off looking at the various sources Herodotus was making use of as he researched his histories. Whether it be existing written accounts, prose or poetic, inquiries with local populations or authorities, and his preferred method, his own observations. For this episode, we are going to turn to the question surrounding Herodotus's reliability. As we saw last time, he had various source methods to make use of, but how reliable was the information he was receiving? Also, another question was, how reliable was his interpretation of the information. We'll also look at the criticisms that have been levelled at him over the ages, which seem to have started with his successor in the field of history, Thucydides. These criticisms would often be summed up in the alternative title given to him, The Father of Lies. 
This would mostly come out of his willingness to include legends and fanciful accounts, though, as we will see, some not so fanciful as they may appear on the surface. As we'll also see, he would often be misrepresented on these tales that he would report. While looking at his critics, we'll take a look at one of the harshest criticisms written about Herodotus and his work, On the Malice of Herodotus, written by the biographer Plutarch. This work looks at accusing Herodotus of all sorts of prejudices and misrepresentations, but we will look on how seriously we can take Plutarch's arguments. But let us now continue on with the episode, where we'll be looking at the challenges to the authority of Herodotus and his credibility. An area that seems to gather a fair bit of attention when it comes to Herodotus's reliability is the sources he used, or lack thereof. We also need to try not to fall into the trap of imposing our time period onto Herodotus. It would have been much more difficult to obtain certain sources, while he would also need to travel hundreds of kilometres to places to make his own observations and inquiries with the population. Today, for most of us, this information is right at our fingertips, on our phones and computers. Last episode, we looked at the various sources that Herodotus had used and some that he would have access to, to compile his histories. These sources generally covered three areas, and it involved written works, both prose and poetic, his own observations, and his inquiries with local populations or authorities. So let's break these down into the three groups, and look at the question of reliability concerning each. When it comes to written sources, we can break down these into two parts, prose and poetic. As we saw last episode, it is even hard for us to say with any certainty what accounts Herodotus had made use of. When it comes to prose, we don't even have the originals of what may have existed when Herodotus was writing, this making it impossible for us to judge their reliability. Though, with prose writers emerging around this period, having access to works where writers were actively trying to understand the world around them would have been a step in the right direction. For the most part, they would have been trying to present their understanding of the world, not trying to deceive. But ultimately, Due to us not having access to their works, we are not able to assess the reliability of what they reported. When it comes to poetic works, again we are unsure of how much Herodotus made use of them, but last episode we saw he was at least aware of them. By their nature, they are not interested in trying to be factual, but instead are looking to celebrate people or events. Most of these works would have been commissioned by someone of wealth or a city-state. For this reason, we can see that a bias is going to develop to favour the interest of the patron. Or in some cases, the poet or playwright would present their work in favour of a party they were seeking to gain favour from. What these works can be helpful in, though, is getting across the themes and sentiments of what can be found in the poem. When these works looked at their subject, they were on the zoomed-out scale somewhat factual. For example, Aeschylus's play The Persians looked at the Greek victory at Salamis, though told through the Persian eyes. The Greeks did in fact win a victory at Salamis, but many of the details in the play are inserted for dramatic purposes. For example, Darius's ghost talking with the Queen Atossa. Aeschylus was present at the Battle of Salamis, so was able to inject some atmosphere he'd experienced, but he would not have been aware of everything going on during the battle, and especially not what was taking place back in the Persian royal court. We also find something similar when looking at Simonides. His works were written to celebrate the Greek victories in a number of battles during the war. Again, what is important from a historian's perspective is not the details, but the sentiments and how the victors saw their achievements. Using the details within to draw out a historical account would be very much at the historian's peril. When it comes to his epitaphs, they are once again celebrating a city-state's victory or sacrifice. At Thermopylae, 
It's reported that Simonides was commissioned by the Spartans to honour their dead at the site. He would write an epitaph that was carved into a stone tablet that would have been visible for those travelling near the site. The original stone has been long gone from the site, but a replacement was erected in 1955. Herodotus reports the original saying, O stranger, tell the Lacedaemonians that we lie here, obedient to their words. So this shows us that the Spartans were responsible for what was said, but the idea that is presented is that whoever was passing by would need to report to the Spartans the sacrifice their men had made for filling their laws, as no one was left to bring the news home. This is to highlight the Spartans' devotion to the laws of their society and their reputation for self-sacrifice for Sparta. Though, from Herodotus, we are aware of at least two Spartans who had survived the battle at Thermopylae, Aristodemus and Pantites. Again, the purpose of the epitaph was to one of the Spartan dead. They had in fact fallen in the defence of Sparta, but we are aware the word of the defeat could be taken back. Another epitaph that Simonides is credited with is that of the one erected at Marathon on the tomb of the Athenians. This read, Fighting at the forefront of the Greeks, the Athenians laid low the gilded Medes. This would have also been commissioned by the victors, the Athenians, but it does ignore that the polis of Plataea had also fought against the Persians. Though the point with most poetic works is not to tell a factual account, but to honour a city or people in their role in a historic event. Last episode, we saw that Herodotus inquired into many matters that he covers in his histories. He did this when gathering his information on matters regarding Egyptian history and Persian history, to name but a couple. When making these inquiries, he would have been talking with perhaps a local contact or an authority familiar with whatever subject he was looking into. As for how reliable the sources of these inquiries were, it's very difficult to say, as they would have varied, and surely he would have spoken to sources that would have been more credible than others. It also seems that he reports a general feeling of what certain people's thought on a particular subject. We see this at work when he uses the remarks such as, the Persians say, or this is said by the Athenians. From this, it is nearly impossible to work out who he actually spoke to, but it may be more of a collective view of the population he had been inquiring into. Like in our times, where nations hold certain ideas and beliefs supporting their own interests, but ignoring any contrary evidence. For example, when Herodotus talks of the reason for possible animosity between Sparta and Samos, he uses the phrases, the Spartans say and the Samians say, to give the general view of each city's viewpoints of events. This revolved around the theft of a large bronze bowl that Sparta had sent as a gift to Croesus in 548 BC. Apparently when their ship was off the coast of Samos, they were attacked and the bowl stolen, according to what Herodotus reports the Spartans saying. While the Samians also had their take on events, with Herodotus telling us what the Samians said. Their version has the Spartans arriving too late to deliver the gift to Croesus, the Persians having defeated the Lydian Empire. The Spartans then landed on Samos and sold the bowl there, before sailing home and reporting it had been stolen. With both versions that Herodotus reports, it can be seen that they both could possibly be true. It also highlights Herodotus' intent into inquiring into matters, as he had been able to obtain two sides to the one story. Another example where he uses this collective notion when reporting on events is when he talks about Cambyses' behaviour in Egypt. Basically, Cambyses is seen to have committed atrocious acts against the Egyptians, which were religious in nature, such as killing the sacred Apis Ka. 
From much of Herodotus' reporting, that includes what the Egyptians said, it seems to be coming from the priestly class, as they seem to have been his main official source. It is thought that with the Persian takeover of Egypt, the priestly class had lost some influence which affected them socially and financially. This could have then led them to presenting their own version of events to highlight someone they were hostile towards, possibly clouding the reality around events. Also, we are unsure of how all the information was collected on the Persian Empire by Herodotus, but it would be fairly safe to assume he would have had to make many inquiries to gain an understanding of a number of the administrative functions of the empire. For the most part, he gives a pretty good account of these many areas from the point of view of our times and understanding, which indicates he may have had access to a good number of official sources. We also see the same occurring when he explains the mummification process in Egypt, which still holds up well to our current understanding. This showing that amongst his many sources, we can confirm that Herodotus was able to connect with reliable contacts on various occasions, but was still at the mercy with those with an ulterior motive. So as we can see, when it came to Herodotus' direct inquiries, we find ourselves with probably somewhat of a mixed bag, with some reliable and some not so much. Though we can see him attempting to use multiple lines of inquiries on particular subjects, which goes some way into him seeking out a way to mitigate questionable accounts he received, and for him to reach some sort of understanding on what he was presenting. Next, we have the reliability of his own observations. As we saw, this was one of Herodotus' preferred ways of gathering his information. During his travels, he would observe different cultures, geography, monuments and animals. On the question of his reliability here, it really does come to how he interpreted what he had seen. When it came to cultural matters, he appears to be on much firmer ground the closer a culture was to the Greeks. After all, he was a Greek and was a part of Greek culture. It would make sense that he would be looking at others through the prism of his own culture. Though he does seem to understand the concept of what appears normal to one group seems completely foreign to another. This he brings up when talking of Cambyses' willingness to mock Egyptian customs, as they seem silly compared to his own. Herodotus then relates the following story to highlight the importance of customs to people while also seeming strange to others. During his reign, Darius summoned some Indians called Kalatei, who do eat their dead parents. In the presence of the Hellenes, with an interpreter to inform them of what he said, he asked the Indians how much money they would accept to burn the bodies of their dead fathers. They responded with an outcry, ordering him to shut his mouth lest he offends the gods. Well then, that is how people think, and so it seems to me that Pindar was right when he said in his poetry that custom is king of all. When it came to his own observations on the physical world, he seems to be fairly reliable with his own observations except on a few occasions. This occurs with examples we have spoken about before, on his observations of the hippopotamus and another where he talks about going to Elephantine on the Nile. In both of these examples, it would seem he has not even observed the hippopotamus or had even seen Elephantine for himself. It is very difficult to believe he had seen the hippopotamus for himself based on the description he gives. As for travelling to Elephantine, he had just finished giving a bizarre account on the source of the Nile, which involved the region. If he had actually travelled there, he would have seen an account he gave on the sources of the Nile to be untrue. He had earlier said that he had been told of the sources of the Nile by an Egyptian scribe, but if he had been there, he would have been able to report the falsity of the information. 
All in all, Herodotus himself seemed intent on trying to obtain what sources he could on particular subjects, and then attempt to sort out what seemed plausible. We see on a number of occasions where he has judged the reliability of the sources he had obtained, such as with Cyrus's birth story, where he says he would tell us the most believable account he had heard. Again, source gathering in his day would have been much more of a challenge than today. When travelling to another land, he would have had to seek out what he could, and would have probably been subjected to official lines of information, which in themselves were more interested in presenting a certain point of view, rather than the facts. His journey to Egypt, and his time with the priests there, potentially highlighting this. So we have looked on the question of the reliability of Herodotus' sources, but what about what he reports? Some have suggested that he may have invented some of his stories, or at least taken shortcuts. This often being highlighted through his willingness to include folklore and tales, as well as getting facts completely wrong, such as some things he reports from Egypt, but that we've already covered. Though what this tends to ignore is a number of things in his accounts that had long been thought false, but have since been vindicated. Much of his reporting on the workings of the Persian Empire had been questioned on their accuracy, but with the discovery in the 1930s of what is called the Persian fortification tablets, and the more recent efforts in publishing them, we were able to get a view from the Persians themselves on how they administered the empire. These tablets referred to a 50-year period in Persian history, much of it during Herodotus' time. What these texts have done is shown us that Herodotus actually had a pretty good understanding of the general workings of the empire. In hindsight, it may not seem this to be too surprising. He was a Greek, though he was born and grew up in an environment under Persian control, putting him in a position to be more aware the systems his city of Halicarnassus was a part of. Another example of this was in a more recent discovery, this time on his observation of the building of Egyptian freight ships that were used on the Nile. His description of the boats and construction had been questioned, since no evidence of one had been found. I also get the impression many are willing to dismiss a lot of what Herodotus reports when it can't be confirmed against something else, even when he goes into detail due to the more fantastic tales he's willing to report. The possibility of what he reports isn't even entertained in their eyes. It is tarnished by everything else he says. Anyway, in the last ten years, a wreck discovered in the Nile Delta of a ship dating to the time Herodotus reports on was uncovered that seems to match the same construction method given by him, previously unseen in any past discoveries. At the end of the day, within Herodotus there are elements that are not factual or have been embellished to some degree. After all, he was presenting a work that was intended to stay memorable, in a time where only a small fraction of the public was literate. His histories would have been presented orally to most. I think on the whole, Herodotus' reliability in his reporting is shaped very much by the sources he collected. He intended to present what he found out on his subjects. We even find him saying he doesn't believe some, but will still tell us what they say. Though in some cases, it would appear he was willing to take shortcuts with some information. I keep going back to the hippopotamus, but it really seems like he is just writing based on the description the name gives, or has lifted his description from someone else's work. Though I think we would find just about all writers from all times in history have taken shortcuts somewhere. Today's episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. Do you feel like you're stuck in a dinner rut? With HelloFresh, you get fresh pre-measured ingredients with mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. Skip all those trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun and affordable. You can now enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in 30 minutes or less 
With over 25 recipes to choose from each week, there is something for everyone to enjoy. All recipes are designed and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure deliciousness and simplicity. Myself, as a father of three, I am really liking the look of the many options under the family-friendly category. Go to the link in the show notes to get $80 off, including free shipping on HelloFresh, the number one meal kit. Have you been enjoying the series and want to show your support in some way? You can visit www.castingthroughancientgreece.com and click on the Support the Series button. Here you will find many ways you can help the series grow, from subscribing, getting involved in social media, and leaving reviews where you listen to your podcasts. Other options also include assisting with my Amazon wishlist for resources and supporting the series on Patreon and Buy Me A Coffee. The support I have been receiving so far has been fantastic. So a big thank you to everyone who has been helping me grow the series. I thought we could now continue with questions on his reliability, but from the point of view of the main criticisms that have been levelled at Herodotus over time. We'll also look a little deeper into some of the examples that perhaps might answer some of his critics. Throughout history, Herodotus has had his critics, these ranging from other ancient historians and writers, down to history buffs posting their opinions online in our times. Though I think much of the criticisms either misunderstand what Herodotus is trying to achieve, applying their own concept of history to what he reports, or they look at specific examples of what he says in isolation and let this influence their opinion on his entire work. A bit of the throwing the baby out with the bathwater concept. Thucydides would say in his work on the Peloponnesian War, when outlining his objectives, The absence of romance in my history will, I fear, detract somewhat from its interest. But if it be judged useful by those inquirers who desire an exact knowledge of the past as an aid to the understanding of the future, which in the course of human things must resemble if it does not reflect it, I shall be content. In fine, I have written my work not as an essay which is to win the applause of the moment, but as a possession for all time. Now, Thucydides doesn't refer to Herodotus directly in his passage, but it is thought that it was the histories that he had in mind when writing these words. He had seen what came before him as mere stories to capture people's imagination. Perhaps to some degree he was right. Herodotus is not shy in recounting the strange stories he heard, which he would surely have known to capture people's attention. Though as we have seen through our time with Herodotus in the series so far, he is extremely valuable in our understanding of the Greek and Persian wars, as well as events leading up to them. It is obvious that both Herodotus and Thucydides' approach to writing were quite different, but they seem to have the same general objective in mind. Maybe Thucydides was well aware of this last point, as he pretty much picks up events from where Herodotus left them. He makes reference to the Persian wars, but is always presenting ways to show how they paled in comparison to his subject of the Peloponnesian War. Though we see, in one of the speeches, he puts into the mouth of an Athenian envoy to Sparta, that the topic of the Greek and Persian Wars had been covered well enough already, though in a dismissive tone. But to the Persian Wars in contemporary history we must refer, although we are rather tired of continually bringing this subject forward. Though, ultimately, he seems to have misjudged the histories, as Herodotus' work would not just win the applause of the moment, but it would become a possession for all time. Over time, many have been quick to dismiss what he says due to some of his accounts being fanciful, though some areas that have been singled out have either had explanations to show Herodotus was reporting in good faith, or his accounts have been vindicated close to our times. 
On the other spectrum, we have Aristotle, criticising Herodotus due to his moving away from poetics and framing the world and events around a logos. This Aristotle saw as inferior to making philosophical arguments and points, seeing poetry of more worth than history. Though his criticism can be seen as him defending the worth of poets such as Homer, who Herodotus in the beginning of his histories dismisses in favour of pursuing events that can be corroborated. We do see Herodotus delving into philosophy in some form, perhaps not in factual accounts, but using factual events and inserting dialogue between two historical figures, such as his treatment of the notion of happiness, where he has Solon and Croesus engaging in conversation during Solon's travels. When looking at Herodotus' critics, we can't go past Plutarch and his essay titled The Malice of Herodotus. When reading this essay, it is hard to tell if this is a serious attempt at discrediting Herodotus as it jumps from one point to another with no rest. Plutarch seems to pick on just about everything Herodotus brings up and how he presents it. He accuses him of being slanderous, spiteful, malicious, and being a lover of the barbarian. I think we'll pick out a couple of points to look at, as there is so much within this essay. I think focusing on his work would make an excellent bonus episode down the track sometime. As we have brought up before, Plutarch was writing some 600 years after Herodotus. And what this essay perhaps shows us is that Herodotus was just as popular with his account in Plutarch's time. We see the same in our time, Herodotus being the number one go-to source on the Greek and Persian wars, but many feel the need to discredit him. Also, often people's opinions and reasons for finding fault come from their own biases and conditions of the world around them. Plutarch was born in the Boeotia, the same region as the city-state of Thebes was in. Herodotus had treated Thebes somewhat harshly in his histories, where we have pointed out some reasoning for their actions throughout the series. Though Plutarch takes things to a whole other level, where he almost argues Thebes can do no wrong. We also see this continue to many other city-states, when Herodotus would highlight the Persians' achievements. Plutarch can't seem to handle the Greek city-states being shown in a lesser light. This is one area that many have praised Herodotus, his ability to be less xenophobic than most other Greek writers. Throughout his essay, Plutarch would criticise Herodotus and then point to some other story to try and set the record straight. Though, on many of these attempts, we still find ourselves with no good reason to take his view on an event. Often he will use an account that no longer exists, is of dubious nature, or it isn't even clear where he is drawing on. An example I found that seems to stick out was on his criticism on the final days of fighting at Thermopylae. Herodotus, in what seems to be the most accepted version of events, has the Greeks engaging the Persians outside the pass, then falling back within, where they mount their last stand once surrounded. But Plutarch seems to go with a very similar account to that given by Justin and Diodorus Siculus, who was born just over a hundred years earlier than Plutarch. Plutarch writes, In his narrative of the battle, Herodotus has obscured Leonidas's great accomplishments, saying that all fell there in the narrows by the hill. But it happened otherwise. When they perceived during the night that the enemy was encircling them, they rose up and made for the camp and nearly reached the king's tent, intending to kill the king himself or die in the attempt. They slaughtered everyone who they met as far as the tent and caused the rest to retreat as they went forward. But Xerxes was not found, and inasmuch as they were looking for him, in a great and an immense army, and were wandering about, still it was only with great difficulty that the barbarians slew them when they had surrounded them from every side. 
Here again, we can see Plutarch once again attempting to diminish the Persians at Thermopylae. Even Herodotus was accused of this, but in Plutarch's eyes, not enough. The sources he appears to have used both would have been fairly recent accounts in Plutarch's time, so could well have been the popular telling of the period. Though, most modern historians tend to question Diodorus' account of the battles, with it not always apparent where he got them from. In this case, it is thought he used an account by Ephorus, born in 400 BC. Though he has also been criticised on his accounts of battles, Polybius being one, commenting on his ignorance of the nature of land operations, and when attempting to provide detail rather than general descriptions, the errors are apparent. So there we have a quick look at the malice of Herodotus. Like I said, I feel like I will do something more on this essay in a bonus episode down the track, where I can explore it further. It is also worth noting that it has been proposed that Plutarch's essay was an exercise in playing devil's advocate on such a popular work and seeing if he could get away with it. He may not have believed all the points he makes, though it does come through that he is annoyed at Thebes' relegation in Herodotus' account. Anyway, I would encourage those of you who are interested to check out what Plutarch writes in this essay and see what you think. I will provide a link to where you can find the online version on the episode page of the website. So there we have a few of the heavy hitters of ancient times that have levelled criticisms at Herodotus. Now I want to turn to some more general criticisms that have often been brought up against Herodotus. These I see from time to time in blogs, articles, in magazines, and dotted throughout social media. Again, one thing I've seen in common with these is that they focus on a tale that Herodotus reports, and then from the perspective of that, they dismiss the rest of Herodotus in passing. Imagine if we dismissed Herodotus, it would be like turning off the light switch on our understanding of the Greek and Persian wars, as well as events surrounding them. What I want to do here is focus on three main examples that are often picked up to discredit Herodotus, which tend to focus around the idea how could a serious historian be so willing to engage in fanciful tales? The first focuses on a story Herodotus gives on giant ants that dig up gold. He says, There are Indians of another tribe who border on the city of Caspactris and the country of Pactria. These people dwell northward of all the rest of the Indians and follow nearly the same mode of life as the Bactrians. They are more warlike than any other tribes and from them the men are sent forth who go to procure the gold. For it is in this part of India where the sandy desert lies. Here, in the desert, there live amid the sand great ants, in size somewhat less than dogs, but bigger than foxes. The Persian king has a number of them, which have been caught by the hunters in the land whereof we are speaking. Those ants make their dwellings underground, and like the Greek ants, which they very much resemble in shape, throw up sand heaps as they burrow. He then continues after giving some strange characteristics of their camels. When the Indians reach the place where the gold is, they fill their bags with the sand and ride away at the best speed. The ants, however, scenting them, as the Persians say, rush forth in pursuit. Now these animals are, they declare, so swift that there is nothing in the world like them. If it were not, that the Indians get a start while the ants are mustering, not a single gold gatherer would escape. Okay, so on the surface of it, it looks like what Herodotus is reporting is a bit out there. Though, with a lot of tales and myth, a kernel of truth can often be found. Chinese whispers or misunderstanding can often distort the details. 
First of all, we need to see, from what Herodotus writes, is that he doesn't say he witnessed these ants. His account makes it clear that he's reporting what he heard from the Persians. This is a key point overlooked when trying to paint Herodotus in a bad light. But thanks to the explorer, Mikhail Peisel, we may have an explanation for the tale Herodotus recounts. Peisel travelled to a region known as the Densar Plains, on the Pakistani side of the Pakistani-Indian border. He had heard stories that seem awfully close to what Herodotus describes, though he wanted to check them out for himself, a step further than Herodotus. The places Herodotus names are not known for sure, but are often thought to be in or near the Densar region. What Peisel found was that there were burrows throughout the region, and the locals would go and collect the gold dust from the mounds that had been dug out. Though, these weren't ants that dug these burrows, they were marmots, large rodents about the size of a possum. The confusion with the ants that Herodotus reports may be in a misinterpretation of the ancient Persian word for marmot. Remember, these would have been new creatures for them also, only learning of them when their empire reached this far east. The ancient Persian word roughly translates to mountain mouse ant. I think this can help us understand the story Herodotus gives with the added knowledge he was reporting what was said to him. I think it is fairly safe to say he wasn't completely inventing the story. As some have claimed, the details had just become garbled. Next I want to move on to another story which also revolves around the collection of gold. I've often seen it used as an example of completely dismissing Herodotus as a historian. I will share one comment I saw on social media a while ago that sums up the general feeling I see when criticising Herodotus. How can we even take Herodotus seriously? He even believes in cyclopses and them stealing gold from griffins. This leads us into the account of the lands beyond Scythia, and where the tale of the griffins guarding gold comes up. Firstly, Herodotus brings up a poem that talks of having visited lands on the fringes of the known world, beyond the Scythians. This he includes in stories that he says are both told by the Hellenes and Barbarians. This Aristeus, possessed by Apollo, visited the Isidones. Beyond this live one-eyed Aramaspians, beyond who are the griffins that guard gold, and beyond these again the Hyperboreans, whose territory reached the sea. The Isidones are people that are thought to have lived in Central Asia at the end of the trade route heading east. He also notes that the account in the poem doesn't always align with what the Scythians report of the lands to the north. As Herodotus continues on with other stories he had heard coming from the Scythians, he remains sceptical of what lay beyond the Isidones. But what lies north of the bald men, no one can say with exact knowledge. For high and impassable mountains bar the way, and no one crosses them. These bold men say, although I do not believe them, that the mountains are inhabited by men with goat's feet and that beyond these are men who sleep for six months of the twelve. This I cannot accept as true at all. He then continues. It is amongst the Isidones themselves that the strange tale of the distant north originate. Tales of the one-eyed men and griffins which guard the gold, and the Scythians have passed them on to the rest of us. This brings us to another failure on the part of the critics. Often we find they present their argument without having actually read what Herodotus says himself and then presenting an uninformed opinion that ends up having no basis on what is in the original text. All through the passages, Herodotus talks about the people of eastern Scythia. He remains sceptical on all that is presented and told to him regarding the peoples that live beyond the known world in the Greek eyes. As an interesting side note, 
The griffins at Herodotus brings up are often found in a number of ancient sources, not only Greek. They have been likened to fossils of pterodactyls that seem to be prevalent in the mountains in the parts of the world where they are talked about. So maybe the ancients seeing these remains connected them to the griffins that appear in mythology. Though, what would have come first is the question, the myth or the discovery of the pterodactyl fossils? Anyway, let's move on to our final example. This one we have covered a little when looking at the second Persian invasion. This has to do with the numbers Herodotus reports on the size of Xerxes' army. Again, we see critics scoff at the size of the forces that Herodotus gives. But here, they often cite numbers of known populations after Herodotus' time to show how preposterous his reporting is. In many of the criticisms, once again, there is no attempt to understand why he came up with the numbers he did. They just dismiss what he says. Just about everyone agrees that the numbers given are far too high, but some have sought to understand why he reported what he did. Let's remind ourselves on what he reports. The number of the infantry came to 1,700,000, and that of the cavalry amounted to 80,000. But let me add also to these, the Arabians who drove the camels, and the Libyans who drove the chariots. Altogether, they added up to 20,000 men, and so now, the numbers from the fleet combined with the land army came to a total of 2,317,610. That then was the number of armed forces that had been set out from Asia. Herodotus then goes to describe the forces that would be added to this, marching towards Greece. These additional forces would come from the lands the Persians were marching through and had submitted. We are told this added another 300,000 troops to Xerxes' invasion. To further blow this total figure out, Herodotus tells us that he estimates the support personnel that would have accompanied the army would have been almost as many again, arriving at a total figure of 5,283,220. As we can see, this seems impossibly large, but let's have a look at what may have led to providing figures so high. Probably one of the most simplistic explanations that has been put forward was that this was another way of saying the size of Xerxes' army was larger than anyone in Greece had ever seen. This is a very common tool when trying to convey the immense size of something without possibly knowing the true numbers. Most writers tend to focus on the enormity of their subject, wanting to stress its importance to show how critical it was. Though I'm not sold on this point being the only explanation, I think there was much more to the figures Herodotus gives. Another point we can perhaps see to explaining things lays with another account he gives in the histories. He talks of spies being sent to Sardis to gather information on the Persian army. Though during their mission, they were discovered and brought before the Xerxes, who prevented their execution. He then ordered they be taken on a tour of all the forces assembled to attack Greece, before releasing them. If this account has some truth to it, it could be possible an official report existed somewhere in Athens or another city-state. Obviously, Xerxes' motives here would have been to show the sheer helplessness of the Greeks' position before he launched his invasion. So the numbers that the Greeks took back with them may have been a combination of their own observations, along with what the Persians wanted them to take back. Again, not a factual record of what was deployed, but what Xerxes wanted the Greeks to believe that was coming. The final point I will bring up again could relate to these reports, or another source Herodotus may have used when getting his figures. This time, a misunderstanding in translation or mixing up titles may explain the blowout in numbers. The Persians broke their units up into commands, based off a decimal system. It is then thought either Herodotus or another Greek authority mix up the two of the command structures, that of the 1,000-strong Chiliad command as being the 10,000-strong Myriad command. 
This would then therefore multiply the actual figures by 10. If this was the case, this would see Herodotus' figure of 1.7 million infantry turn into 170,000. Many have argued that even this sees the Persian army being impossibly large. As if we look at the rest of the figures, we end up with a total force including support troops of 500,000. Though, this doesn't have to be the only explanation. It could also be working in with a report the spies brought home. Maybe the figure we end up with here was the inflated number Xerxes wanted to present. The Greeks had just misinterpreted them even further. We are also left with the fact that the Greeks may have embellished the figures. At the end of the day, I don't think Herodotus knowingly misrepresented the figures on such a grand level. He may have stressed the importance of the defence of Greece to a degree, but I think the main explanation for reporting the enormous figures comes from reporting the embellished, one way or another, figures that he had access to. We have now looked at Herodotus in his own right. We have followed along with him through our look in the Greek and Persian wars, looking at what he reports and what may have been behind what he says. We have now looked at who he was, what he was presenting, and some of the themes around his work. We then were able to look at criticisms levelled at him and the questions around his reliability. Even though I've pointed out theories and explanations around some of these points, the truth is that we are still left to our best guesses on some of these points. I think though, what time has taught us with Herodotus and what he reports is that we need to stay open-minded to what he says. He has been vindicated on a number of times on things he reports that had long been thought made up. I think one of the major elements in wanting to find fault with Herodotus is based on concepts of history after Herodotus' time, all the way up to our own idea of it today. We need to remember, Herodotus wasn't working with a form concept of what the discipline of history was. We look back to his work and see his mission in making an inquiry into the past, or a historiore, something that appears to be new in the realm of prose and logos. So, in some degree, we are judging his work on the idea and concept that would be developed over the next 2,500 years after the histories. I think our biggest takeaway here should be that without Herodotus, our knowledge of the Greek and Persian wars and even earlier events would be severely lacking. Remember, Herodotus is labelled the father of history. He is seen to have given birth to the concept. But like a child, history would grow up and mature as it touched on the ages that would pass by, arriving at the discipline it represents today. Thank you everyone for your continued support and a big shout out to all of those who have found some value in the series and have been supporting it on Patreon in other various ways. Your contribution is truly helping me grow the series. I would also like to give a shout out to our newest Strategos supporter on Patreon. A huge thank you to Kathleen Smith for finding value in the series and what I am doing. Your support is greatly appreciated. If you have also found some value in the show and wish to support the series, you can head to www.castingthroughancientgreece.com and click on the support the series button, where you can discover many ways to extend your support to helping the series grow. Be sure to stay connected and updated on what's happening in the series, and join me over on Facebook or Instagram at Casting Through Ancient Greece, or on Twitter at Casting Greece. And be sure to subscribe to the series over at the Casting Through Ancient Greece website. I hope you can join me next time for episode 38, The Greek Periphery, Sicily. <laughs>